KNW, I'm Melissa. And I'm Stephanie Carcace, and we are two sisters and the founders of Millennial Women. And your host of Millennial Women Talk podcast. We are so grateful you're sharing your time with us today. By tuning into this episode, you're investing in becoming the best version of you, and we're thrilled to be on this journey together. In today's episode, we speak to Stephanie Arnold, an incredible woman with an incredible story. When Stephanie was pregnant with her second child, she had a sudden and overwhelming premonition that she would die during the delivery. She told everyone, but no one believed her. Well, her vision did come true. Stephanie flatlined for 37 seconds, but because she was brave enough to speak up about her premonitions, doctors were prepared to save her life, and she is now alive and well to share her story with us today. Stephanie shares how death is nothing to be afraid of and that the soul truly is eternal. Get ready because this episode will cause some goosebumps. Yes. Here's our conversation with Stephanie Arnold. Okay, Ms. Stephanie Arnold, welcome to Millennial Women Talk. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Okay, so we're going to dive right in because your story is pretty remarkable. Okay, so... You say that you had premonitions about you dying while giving birth to your second child, your son. What exactly were you saying and what made you think like, you know what, something is not right and I have to speak up? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'd had a baby before. I'd had a C-section before. So this wasn't this fear of the unknown. It was a very odd thing. What I call it is a knowing. You know, you don't know how you know, you just do. And it makes the back of your hair on the neck stand up. And it's just, it it screams so loud in your body. It's like that gut instinct that you just, you know, something bad is coming. And so at the fifth month, about the 20 week ultrasound, I was diagnosed with a placenta previa, which is pretty common. It's a one in 200 risk where pl the placenta is growing on top of the cervix. And they say, you know, in time, as the belly grows, as the uterus grows, then it'll move out of the way. Worst case scenario is you have a C-section. And um, I stopped for a moment when I got that information. I looked at my husband, who's a PhD economist from University of Chicago, very analytical, very linear, very gringo. And he was like, <laughs> and he was like, um, I said, I have a really bad feeling about this. And he's like, honey, we don't have all the information. You need to relax. You're doing prenatal care and everything. I said, look, I have a very rare blood type and you know, I don't want to be special in any category, but there's something wrong. And so of course he's calm. He was a former air force pilot. There's no crisis here. He's just trying to use every tool and toolbox thinking his wife is you know, maybe got a little more testosterone in her body because I have a baby boy. And um, and then we go home. And then when we're home, Dr. Google comes up and starts Googling everything that could possibly go wrong. And it talks about how a placenta previa could turn into an accreta, which is what Kim Kardashian had when the placenta merges itself to the uterus. If that happens, you might bleed. If that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. If that happens, you might hemorrhage. And worst, worst case scenario is you and the baby could lose your lives. Wow. And it was almost like the light bulb had gone off. I read exactly the feeling of that knowing. And when I read it, I pushed the computer back and I said to my husband, this is going to happen to us. The only difference is the baby's going to be fine but I'll be dead on the operating table. Wow. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like 
evening, nighttime dreams or anything. It was constant. So I, you don't have to take my word for it. I told everybody, I told the doctors, I told nurses, I went to specialists. I went straight in for it. They're like, oh, how's your pregnancy going? And if you would have seen me on the street pregnant, I'd be like, oh, how's your pregnancy going? I'd be like, I'm going to die. It was very wow. matter of fact. Um, I, at one point I had specialists, I mean, in, in the doctor's defense and in my husband's defense, all of the tests were negative. So at one point I even made an appointment with the head of gynecological oncology at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, which is a very big teaching hospital in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is a doctor that's in charge of high risk reproductive organ surgeries for women who have had cancer. And so we're sitting in the waiting room and my husband is like in their women's suffering, IVs in their arm, no hair on their bodies. And he's like, I'm embarrassed to be here. And I said, I don't know what to tell you. Um, maybe this doctor has heard of this kind of foreboding in a patient, and maybe this will indicate something else is going on because the ultrasounds and the blood workup are not telling us the whole story. And um, so we go in, we have the consultation, the doctor's like, um, how can I help you, Mrs. Arnold? And I'm like, my placenta previous is going to turn into a creta. You're going to need to be there the day of my C-section, and you're going to have to perform a hysterectomy. So I see you, you see me, you're now my doctor. Nicole And I was like, he's like... <gasps> Um, uh, oh my gosh. he's like, have you been on the internet? And I'm like, why? Yes, I have doctor, but you know what? <laughs> this is going to happen. So, so, um, so he did an MRI. The MRI was negative for this accreta. And, you know, now I'm running out of people to tell this crazy foreboding story to. And, mm. um, at some point my doctor had recommended I speak to an anesthesiologist I had a consult with her and told her everything that I was fearing. And she said, you know, you're in a teaching hospital. I hope, you know, I've made you feel better. And I, I was like, this is the last person I'm going to talk to. So, um, no, I don't feel better. It is what it is. Right. So I posted on Facebook. If anybody has my blood type, I'm going to need blood. I wrote goodbye letters. I sent out goodbye letters. I told everybody what was going to happen in a few weeks time. And then the day um, I went in to give birth all hell broke loose. That is just insane. And I, you know, it's funny because like, as you're sharing all of this, my first thought is like, it's hard to like, would did people believe you right off the bat? Like people were kind of like, this girl's crazy, right? Because every, every clinician, um, nurse, doctor, they were like, I think you need to relax. I think you're stressed. I think you're this, I think you're that. Or they have anxiety or something. Yeah, right. of course. And then also, right. you know, if the tests are negative and I'm a healthy female, you know, right. they're like, right. they're putting you in a category that's like, it's no problem. And so, but you yourself feeling like, um, you're, you're, you see this 18 wheeler headed straight for mm -hmm. you and nobody sees it. Everybody sees an open road. Right. So they're not seeing this hallucination, if you will. And you are terrified of it. Yeah. I want to, there's so much things to unpack here. Um, what has been your spiritual journey up to this point? Were you always connected? Um, were you open to that? Like how was your, because science is one thing, right? Because science was telling you, you know, nothing's, nothing's going to happen, right? But your spirit, your internal knowing was telling you something different. So you're obviously a very connected person. 
So I would love to know a little bit about that. You know, I was raised Jewish. I went to parochial school. You know, I have faith in God. I'm Cuban. So it's like the whole, you know, my grandmother was Santera, you know, like, so there was that, that connection spiritually, but um, as a kid, I, you know, I would see death before it happened. And as a kid, Mm. you feel like you're willing it to happen. So then you compartmentalize it and you're like, I don't want to do that. It's a curse. Right. And like, I don't want I don't want to see that until it's your own foreboding. And then when it's your own, then you have no choice, but to speak up. So all of the vibration that had maybe on low voltage as a kid and didn't fully understand it, but had had no filter as you get older, you have a filter and you're like, okay, that sounds crazy. That's not possible. And then when you're racing against a clock to save your own life, you don't care what anybody thinks. You're getting these messages and you're like, okay, you know what? If I'm wrong, I'll send flowers and chocolates. I will never have another baby again. But on the chance that I am right, I am not going to regret speaking up because I could save my life. So- So through this process, I became much stronger in my faith um, and not just in God, but I mean, I've, I've always, like I said, I've always had faith in God, but it was more of that connected tissue, that energy, that vibration that's outside of ourselves that we pick up from other people that we pick up from our children that we pick up from strangers and, Mm. and then beyond the veil that, that is new. And I don't, um, I can't go backwards after everything that I've experienced. Well, talk a little bit about that day. What happened to you when you went to deliver your son? Yeah. So um, my husband was out of town and, uh, and I had started making my daughter who was two at the time um, breakfast. And at some point I felt like a cramp and then I bled all over the kitchen floor. So I knew that that day was the day I was going to give birth. So I called my husband and I said, you need to get on a plane and come right back here. He was on a plane headed back to me. I get triaged at the hospital and the doctors are like, you know, the operating rooms are quiet right now. You've been stressed this whole pregnancy. Why don't we just take him and we'll be back. And I'm Skype chatting with my husband on the, the computer and I am telling him, um, that he's made me the happiest woman in the world and that to please love these children. And I'm, I'm in essence saying goodbye because these are the last words he's ever going to read and he's still not getting it. So he's like, where do I meet you? And I'm like eighth floor recovery, hopefully. And that was the last thing that I said. Then I get, um, I hug my daughter a million times because I'm convinced it's the last time I'm going to see her. And I muster up all the strength so I don't cry because I don't want the last thing she sees is fear. And I get gurneyed out and I break down and I tell my doctor, I'm like, there's something wrong. You need to put me under general anesthesia. And she's like, Stephanie, I know you're nervous. Jonathan's not here, but if I put you under general, I put you and the baby to sleep. And that's really dangerous. I know, you know, don't worry, we're here. We'll take good care of you. So I get wheeled into the room that's going to give life to my son and take mine. And I'm, you know, I have an epidural and you know, doctors, if you're having elective surgery and you have foreboding, you know, the doctors be like, let's stop everything. We're not going to do this procedure, but this baby was coming out no matter what. So I couldn't get away from myself and I couldn't get away from what was about to happen. So I'm almost at impact and acutely aware that the moment my son is delivered, I will die. So 
they, I'm having a C-section. So they put a curtain in front of my face. They put soap on my belly. They are preparing for the incision. Um, and they deliver a happy, healthy baby boy. And seconds later, I'm dead. Oh my God. I literally have goosebumps all over my arms right now. So, you know, for you, that's so scary, right? Because you kind of know what's about to happen. You know, how did you like, my God, what was running through your head? Like, you're just like laying there and you're like, this is any minute now. And then what was that switch of your separation? So the hardest part of my book writing was taking you back into those moments because I had to be so descriptive of everything that I heard. So the tap of the of the EKG unit and the hearing the beeping, it was almost a countdown to an explosion. Um, the everything went silent. Apparently everybody was talking to me and telling me, Oh, are you cold? Do you need anything? I'll be your husband right now while your husband's not here. Um, I was completely, um, disconnected from my body. I don't know whether my soul separated at that moment. I feel that it Mm -hmm. did because it didn't want to see the moment of impact, but if that is not scientifically possible, but there are other things Mm. that you will learn, but, um, I feel like in those moments I separated because what the doctors and the nurses said right before I delivered Jacob, um, they said I was catatonic. They said I was lifeless. They said I was just not answering them. They were trying to communicate with me and I was just just not there. Um, so, so, so I ended up having a very rare pregnancy complication called an amniotic fluid embolism. If your audience wants to learn more about it, it's at afesupport.org. It's a very rare pregnancy complication, which is a one in 40,000 risk where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in most cases, you don't make it. To give you perspective, Northwestern delivers 12,000 babies a year. Um, they've had, they've been in existence beyond 30 years. And so they've had approximately 10 amniotic fluid embolisms. Six did not make it. And the other three are in permanent vegetative states. The only reason I am alive is because that very last phone call, something I didn't predict, um, that very last phone call that I had with anesthesia, she said she was very uncomfortable that she had, she had never had a patient speak so clearly about what was going to happen, had had a baby, had a baby before and had sought out specialists to save her life. And with that one phone call, she flagged my file and incorporated extra blood in a crash cart in the operating room. What a blessing. What a blessing that she herself listened to an intuition that was in her. That she believed you. And believed you. Yeah. And she said, and her name is Grace. And she said, Oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. So she said, she said, when I spoke at her hospital um, a year and a half ago, and her, you know, her, she said she never felt that the intuitive moment for her was flagging my file. She felt that what was intuitive for her was she was logging charts or what have you. And then my flag came up in the hospital and she was like, what am I doing here? And she went to the OR um, and there's an attending anesthesiologist. So you don't need a fellow anesthesiologist there at the same time. And she said to the attending, she said, I've got a bad feeling about this. Wow. That was it. That is so crazy. So you write this book, 37 seconds. What were those 37 seconds like? So once you know, you're just to, to be clear. So I had all of these premonitions that I, the second phase of the AFE happens and then I hemorrhage. 
And then they stabilize me and Jonathan gets to the hospital. So I just wanted to, to let you know. So then Jonathan hears from the doctors that it's an AFE. And he says, if she needs a hysterectomy, this is a doctor we met with two months before. And so they mm. thought that that was interesting. Well, why would you meet with somebody like that? Right. So, um, and then seven hours later, I was still hemorrhaging and they brought in the doctor to perform the hysterectomy. And then they did, um, they did a pathology on the uterus and it showed that an accreta had started to form, but where the MRI was and how microscopic it was, it didn't pick it up at that moment. Um, wow. So everything I had predicted um, came true. I did not remember. I was in a six day medically induced coma. I had kidney failure. There were a lot of recovery through the process. And I was on the Steve Harvey show at some point, cause I went on local, local CBS. I did told the story and then it kind of went crazy. And then I was on the talk show and he's like, did you see the light? Right. Like, I don't know. I always want to know that. <laughs> right. I don't know, man. They gave me a lot of drugs. I have no idea, <laughs> you know, but um, I had, I started writing the book during this process. And, um, and so he, he sparked something in me that if there was a way to find out, I wanted to. So I ended up using a regression therapist that uses hypnotherapy to take you back into the moments of trauma. Mm -hmm. And I recorded those sessions. And from that, um, I was able to see what happened in the OR at the time of flatline, you know, who hit the button for the code, which nurse jumped on my chest, what my anesthesiologist wow. was doing by my feet, what my daughter was doing down the hall, you know, in the labor and delivery unit where the nurse's break room was on the, the surgery floor, just all these details. And then, you know, I see a flash and then I see hundreds of spirits and mm. there were people that I knew and people that I didn't know. So you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll put a pin in is, you know, psychiatrists will talk about, well, of course, when you're traumatized, you want your loved ones near you. Okay, that's fine. Let's, let's put my loved ones right over here. So it's the ones that I didn't know that had messages for the ones I did know, like our mutual friend, Rosalind. So I said, um, I had seen a little boy who was about seven years old, who looked a little bit like her, and he had a message. And I called her after the session. And I said, I have no idea what this is. I have no idea if it's true. I said, but I think I saw your brother. And she said, oh she said, what, what are you talking about? I said, I, I think I saw your brother. And, um, he told me that he misses the way you twirled his hair. And every time you're twirling Jonah's hair, her son's hair, mm -hmm. you know, he's there smiling and she drops oh the phone. Goodness. And I hear her screaming and crying. And she's like, she picks up the phone and she says, how do you know that? And I was like, what did I say? She said, she said, I used to twirl his hair every night to make him go to sleep. And it, it's just the way. Oh my God, I want to cry. <laughs> there, there were moments, there were things about um, his, you know, his death that were questionable that gave her a lot of peace after, you know, after it happened, you know, after these sessions happened, I saw my husband's father who had passed in 1998 and there were specific messages and things that he would never know and things that I would never know, um, that came to fruition. And so, so there's something there. It's not just, right. 
I don't know what, what that is. It's almost like mm. I talk as a kid, I was on low voltage, then I go asystolic, right? No electricity mm-hmm. running through my body. Then when you get plugged in, you're on high voltage. So I pick mm. up things and it's more than just seeing patterns in people and just, you know, feeling things are just guesses. Um, they happen randomly. I'm not trying to hone in on it or do anybody's readings or anything. But if something hits, I feel like, I feel like as, if I'm anything, it's like more of a medical intuitive because all of my tells have been dealing with life and death, including my own. So right. if it's not urgent for somebody to know something like that, that the rest of it is just noise for me. And I don't, I, I don't need extra people in my life that are, that are, are crowding the space. So, um, right. but I have no explanation how it works. That's why I've been going down this rabbit hole for many years to try and figure out how the mechanisms for how. Yeah. That's so crazy. I mean, it does bring some sort of peace to know that when we do leave, there are people waiting for us and that there is another place, right? Like, I mean, we believe that we go to heaven, but we've never died and come back. So we don't really know, you know what I mean? Until it happens. But like for you, how do you feel going through that? Like, do you feel like death is a peaceful thing? Do you feel like, you know, what's, what's your opinion or perspective off of what you went through? going to the other side. I don't, I don't cry at funerals anymore. I think Mm. that, you know, what we, what we have seen is that, you know, physically they can only handle so much, but you know, when they physically end life continues. So life doesn't end when we physically do. I, you know, now their spirits can fly. Now they can be around their children, their grandchildren. They can be around nieces and nephews at all times when they're needed. Um, And you know, it's, it's an interesting, I, I don't fear death. And I think a lot of people who've had near death experiences. don't fear, don't fear death. Some people want to go back to that place. I'm not ready to go back. Uh, as you saw from the Netflix thing, it's like, no, that's not, that's, I was very content in my life here. And I feel like I've had unfinished business to do. Well, I think you explained too that you your soul wanted to come back. So you were you were ready on the other side, but you wanted to come back. Yeah, but I don't want to negate other people's traumas and how, you know, right. why one didn't survive and the other did. I mean, a woman died this week from what I had. And so is her life worth less than mine? I think I think absolutely not. I just I think that we all have our if you will, soul contracts. And I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, if, if that woman's soul contract was done and her purpose was fulfilled, however that was, I have no idea. Um, you know, if my background in television helps talk more about the subject because I'm so research and analytical about the things that I put out there, then maybe it gives more evidence for people to share in their stories. Because when I was Google searching, foreboding, premonitions, all of this, there wasn't anything that existed. And now I find that when our story's out there, it gives people validation and also holds a space for them to share. And I can't tell you how many pregnant women have reached out to me and being like, I feel this. And I'm like, and you just to talk to your anesthesiologist, they are the ones keeping you alive, right? So, and once you tell them that, then they are aware that you're having this, the, the nervousness. And, you know, so, so it has become quite apparent for me to become more of the patient and, and physician advocate to, to toe the line between both so that 
they learn how to use their intuition too, because, you know, the, the grace who flagged my file, she's like, I did nothing special. I said, you were the only one that listened. I said, Mm. what my doctors were missing was I'd had a baby before with them. This was abnormal behavior for me. And if the doctor actually listens to the patient beyond what the data is saying and just listen to all the patient wants to do is be heard. But if you get dismissed, I mean, it's with anything in relationships and business or anything. It's like, you know, if you're not being heard, you're banging your head against the wall. And then you're also that anxiety and that nervousness is going to increase over and over and over again. Right. Of course, because you don't feel like you have anybody in your corner. Exactly. You know, and we're so, you know, sometimes it's like we're so spiritual secretly you know, and I feel like we have to normalize that. We have to normalize what intuition is. Mm -hmm. And when you're so connected internally, you know, oftentimes we don't express that for fear of not being heard or it not making logical sense. And and being judged and being crazy and everything else, right? Exactly. And so this is why your story is so powerful. And I want to ask you, like, for you, what, and maybe you haven't come to that, right, in your own personal journey, but have have you come to a place of, do you know why you had to go through that mm-hmm. and had to experience that, you know, in this lifetime? I, you know, I've been learning a little bit about ancestral trauma. I've been learning about, you know, generations of trauma that you carry with you, that part of it right. is not mine, but it has to stop with me because I don't want to you know, put that on my children. Um, you know, like I said, I, I think that it is not a coincidence, which I don't believe in coincidences, but it's not a coincidence that I've worked in television since I was 14 years old. Um, because when the book came out, every friend of mine who was a showrunner on every major talk show out there was like, I want you on our show. And that was a way to get the word out for people to, um, share their own stories and feel comfortable speaking up. You know, I did not lead, I think, I think Harper Collins thought that the book was going to compete with heaven is for real and proof of heaven and everything. And it did not. Um, and I'm not unhappy about it because the audience that has picked up this book are hospitals, medical institutions. I've spoken at the department of defense of, you know, clinicians, um, people who are hopeful agnostics, if you will, but skeptics. And when you give them more evidence, which is what I led with, with the story, it makes it more comfortable for people to share their stories with me because I'm not looking at them like crazy. And I will say it till the day I die again, is that, you know, (laughs) that if you sense something, say something, you will never, ever regret speaking up and being wrong, but you absolutely will regret not speaking up and being dead right. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, your voice can save your life. Your voice speaking up can save another's life. So if you can't advocate for yourself, but you can advocate for others, you never know the power of that and the power in sharing your stories and that you have this spiritual side of you and you're sharing it with friends and family or even on your show, all of a sudden people have a different conversation. I mean, even even my husband was testifying in a case the, the other day and after they were done, he got off the stand. You know, the opposing lawyer says, are you on a Netflix show? It was like, it was so out of 
out of like totally out of context. And, um, and so I was like, oh, so what'd you say? And he's like, yeah, I said, this is my wife's thing. I'm like, oh no, you have to own it. You have to own yeah. your wife's thing. Yeah. <laughs> You have to own it. Oh my so God. he, and he has actually, and like he said on the show, it's like, he believes that I see these things because it's been over and over again. He just doesn't know whether to categorize it as anything other than maybe it's supernatural. Maybe it's energy. Maybe there's a quantum explanation to it. Maybe mm. whatever it is, but um, he's a work in progress. <laughs> right. And do you still see premonitions today? Like, what is your life now after this experience? I do. It, it's terrible. Wow. Well, it's not. It's not that. It, it's terrible for my teenager, um, oh, okay. because when she does something she's not supposed to do, I'm like, "Would you like to tell me where you were?" And she's like, "Can't I have a normal mother daughter relationship? <laughs> like, why? Well, my, well, my mother doesn't, doesn't know where I am." <laughs> You know, or, or like, you know, she's, she's just walking in the house and I'm like, let's have a conversation. She's like, no, let's not. And I'm like, let's see you. And uh, no, but I still, I still get them. I have proven to myself that I have seen it over and over again, that I don't need to hesitate any longer, especially when, when our, our health is at risk. So I will say things before they happen. And then um, they will now just listen and they will shift gears. So nothing happens, right? And I don't need to prove that it was going to happen in order to say, oh, mom's a witch. I just need to say, hey, I've got a bad feeling about this. Let's just go left instead of right. Okay, it takes us two minutes out of the way, but why do I need to stay there to find out if mom's right? Um, And that's where we're now. That's so good. I mean, that's a heavy thing to carry, right? Like, I mean, so do people, I mean, I don't know if I was next to you, I'd be like, so Stephanie is, what do you think is going to happen? You know what I mean? It's almost like, do you know what's going to happen I'm next? I'm sure that's like a your lot friends. of pressure. Do you feel that pressure? Like with the people close to you, like always asking you, like, do you sense something in yeah. me? No, because I, there, I mean, I, I will tell you like some people, you know, they're like, there was, oh, there was really funny story. Oh, I should tell this one. So I were, well, I'm launching, <laughs> I'm launching a podcast with the people from Netflix. Um, and so she was like asking me for a funny story. This is actually a funny story. So um, we were at a party and this, this person, the, the, this couple said, you know, at the end of, at the end of the party, they're like, um, do you want to go with us to the club? It's late. We were in, we were in Europe and he was like, and my husband, because he never gets, he was nerd in high school and in college. He's like, he never gets invited to the after party. He's like, sure, let's go. And I said, um, I said, honey, I don't think we should go. And he's like, why? They're so nice. I said, I think they're swingers. Yeah. And he's, it's and, no, right. And so I, he's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, fine, no problem. So he goes, he's going to kill me for saying, okay. So he's, so we go to the bar <laughs> Right, we go to the, the club and the wife turns to her husband and says, oh, take Stephanie to the dance floor, right? I said, honey, I said, honey, you have 15 minutes. I said, I'm coming back here and then we're taking a taxi. So, so I come back and he's looking a little flushed and we get in the cab. And he's like, how do you know these things? And I was like, what happened? And he says, he says, he's like, he says, well, you know, I didn't think anything of it until she brushed up against my penis. And I was oh like, my oh, God. <laughs> oh, 
You're like, I told you. you. Know, so then I'm with friends <laughs> here and we're having dinner and they're like, and I was telling that story and they were like, you mean you can tell if somebody I said, yeah. And the woman looks at me and she's like, really? I said, yeah. And she stepped back and I was like, but I don't out anybody. It doesn't make a difference. Like I'm like, you know, so they stopped being our friends. Oh my- That's hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. Steph, oh my gosh. You've shared so many insightful things, you know, things that have me thinking. And, you know, that's the, that's the, the key, right? We always want to be having conversations that people can listen to that make them think, oh, I never thought of it like that. Or, you know, lead them to continuing to research, right? So what is it for you that you hope your book brings to people, you yourself, as a person, what is your message, you know, in general, and also to someone right now that may be listening to us or seeing us? So one of the things, especially with this pandemic, when people have been heartbroken watching their family members die by themselves and comas and on life support and not being able to touch them or be with them or be heard by them. And one of the key messages I take away from that and and what I've spoken in front of hospitals before is like I said, how many of you believe that a patient can hear you when they're in a coma or on life support? And they all raised their hand. And then I said, Mm -hmm. I said, and how many of you believe that the patient can see you? And then a small portion did. And I said, well, in many cases, we can hear you. And in many cases, we can even see you. And so when you are at home and your loved one is quote unquote untouchable through that FaceTime, through that connection, through that communication via phone, they can actually hear you. And when they cross over, they are still with you. So like I said, you know, I, I haven't until all of these years been able to say with conviction because I was afraid. I was afraid to, you know, I don't know, I don't know why I think given the journey, but I was afraid to step so far out onto the ledge and say, this exists. I don't know, I don't know how it exists, but I'll use my stories and continue to tell these stories in front of people who, you know, in that moment when you sense it. So when you sense things, your intuition is usually a hundred percent right. It's when you second guess it and your logical side kicks in and says, you know what, maybe I'm thinking too much about this. Maybe this is not, maybe this person is really good for me. Maybe I should go into this relationship. Well, I'm too picky as a woman. Maybe, you know, this, this guy is really the right one for me, but your gut tells you, no, it's not right. And you do it anyway. And then it implodes later. And you just know, you knew it. You knew it from the moment you met that person. I want people just to pay attention to what that feels like. And if you pay attention to what that feels like, it'll start resonating in your body the same way every time something bad is about to happen. It is your compass for what's going to go very wrong in your life. And the the very last thing more than anything else is that that by sharing your stories, by having the courage to share your stories, more people will share theirs. You will be pleasantly surprised at how many people around you. I, my neighbor across the street was um, a reporter for uh, 48 hours. And until she read my book, she didn't talk to me about her, the fact that she sees the victim's last minutes of their lives when she's in their house 
um, reporting oh on stories. She, the room gets ice cold under the hot lights in production. And, um, and she sees the last couple of minutes of that person's life. And wow. then she sees, she sees ghosts all the time. And I, I said, you, I didn't know this, you've been my neighbor for a decade. And she's like, oh yeah, because I'm going to come out and talk about it. Sure. I'm going to come out, you know? And so I think that what our stories do is give others permission to share. Right. Um, and that will hold, um, hold space for more and more people. And then we, like you said, we normalize the conversation and you be, and right. then more skeptics, more scientists will see there. Well, you know, there's a lot more people than we think less judgment, yeah. you know? Yes, absolutely. I oh, love, I love that, that so much. Oh my gosh. Oh, <laughs> Thank you so much for being brave, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to be brave to go out there and, and share your story. And, you know, we're grateful for you today for coming on here and sharing your story. It's very powerful. It definitely has my mind spinning and thinking, which is exactly what I hope all these conversations do, because we have to be speaking about our truth. Mm -hmm. And so thank you so much for being brave and sharing your story. I, I, I'm not going to forget it. That's for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. When you call Rosalind, you tell her about the story. She'll be like, yeah, it, but it doesn't stop there. Wait till she tells you about me seeing her mother-in-law, like outside my window. Like it, it goes, oh it gets crazier. Goodness. It gets crazier. We have to do a part two. Yeah, I know. No. <laughs> she was like, she was like, I was walking past her. She's like, what do you mean you see my mother-in-law? I said, I'm not telling you that I'm seeing your father who's sitting next to you who wasn't invited into this house. So I just kicked him out. And she's like, she was about to bite into a sandwich. And she's like, what? <laughs> what? Oh my God. <laughs> That is insane. Well, I do have to ask you this. Do you see animals there? You know, it's interesting. Other people have asked that. I did um, I did something with some um, medium at one point and they're like, how does your, they were talking about um, your counsel, your spirit mm -hmm. counsel. And I had never heard that before. And he was it's like, he's like, Stephanie, just close your eyes and let's meditate on this. And I'm like, I feel like I'm bullshitting you. Like, I'm just talking and you're like, he's like, just don't think about it. I just want you to talk about it. And then he's like, I'm pretty famous in these, these circles of spirit councils. So he's like, how do you know me? Like talking to my spirit guides. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, like I'm spitballing. And so I start laughing and he's like, what's so funny? I said, he actually knows you from a dog. And he's like, he's like, can you describe the dog? And I was like, well, it's a German shepherd mix. And so, and I was going into these details and I said, one of the spirit guides name was Sam. And I was like, just going on and on and on. And he's like, and then after we were done, I was like, what the heck was that? And he's like, Stephanie, he's like, I just want you to know that my dog, Sam passed away 20 years ago. And he was a German shepherd mix. Oh, I have chills. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, this makes me happy because I lost my dog like a month ago. And so like I've always, and I've had, I don't, I've never been like a dog person, but this dog and I, we had a bond. There's like a connect. So I'm like, there's gotta be a way where he was, he was meant to be in my life, but there's gotta be a way where we connect again in same, mm -hmm. some way, shape or form, because there's no denying the connection. It's, right. It was more than just having a dog. I've had friends that talk about the dog feeling the pressure on the bed or next to them. And they think like it's wishful thinking, yeah. but they kind of smell the dog or they, they have, you know, a toy that moved or some, something like that. That was just like an, you know, more mm. than a coincidence. Yeah. I've certainly felt that. <laughs>
Which for me, I appreciate because it's like something that, for me, yeah. I, I enjoy. It's a sign. It's a sign. Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, I love this. Oh, Stephanie, you're amazing. I cannot wait to see what's next for you because I know that you're doing really big things um, <laughs> after this whole journey has started for you. So we hope to have you back on the show yes. to talk about all the next things you're going to be launching. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're the Thank best, you, Steph. Yeah, <laughs> My body is still full-on goosebumps. Powerful, powerful episode. Powerful episode. And we just want to thank you for tuning in to today's episode. And if you want to learn more about Stephanie's story, pick up a copy of her book, 37 Seconds, Dying Revealed, Heaven's Help. Subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite platform. This truly helps us continue to bring you powerful conversations just like this to you every single week. And don't forget to text us to the phone number below for subscriber-only freebies and perks to help you become the best version of yourself. As always, we encourage you to continue on with this conversation. Keep being the strong, amazing woman that you are and never forget to live inspired. Until next time, MW, always love Melissa and Stephanie Carcace.